0: Today's episode is sponsored by Lord of the Fortress, a competitive card game from a Ukrainian designer that combines economic strategy and a unique combat system set in the Middle Ages. You have to manage the game's resources wisely, quickly build an independent economy, and gather the best army to win many battles on the way to victory. The main mechanisms are deck building, resource management, troop management, area control, and secret movement. The game is for two to four players, takes about 30 minutes to play, and offers a ton of tactical gameplay. Lord of the Fortress will launch on Kickstarter on March 31st, so be sure to check it out. If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement, and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one, and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level.
1: Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com welcome to the board game design lab podcast a proud member of the dice tower network each week we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love and now here's your host gabe barrett what's up
0: my friends welcome to the board game design lab today we're getting asymmetrical talking about asymmetry in games what does it look like to design a game where you got different factions, and when I say different, I mean real different, playing totally different ways, different mechanisms, different things going on. How do you do that effectively? We're talking to Floyd, Lou, and Steven Schwartz, design team. We've been working on a game called Slash and Spells, which is a very, very asymmetrical game coming out from Burning Forge Games. Gentlemen, welcome
2: to the show. Thanks for having us, Gabe. Thank you, Gabe.
0: Yeah, really glad for you guys to be here. Slash and spells, you know, I was looking at the mechanisms, how the characters work, the heroes and all that. It's like, okay, this, this has got a lot going on. These, these are some very different characters. This is not just, hey, this is the one that moves fast and this is the one that hits hard. Like, no, you've got a lot of differences uh, in your game. It reminds me of games like Root, like Vast, like Merchant's Cove, where each player player's kind of got a different thing going on. So I'm excited to just chat about how do you do this? How do you do this effectively? What are some of the, d- the design challenges y'all ran into. But before we get into that, uh, who are you? How'd you get into game design, all that kind of thing? And Floyd, let's start with you. So I started game designing about seven years
3: ago. Um, I made this racing game called The Refuge, where you run away from zombies and throw your friends off the curve. And I just made it for fun. And actually, people thought it was great. Then I started to make other games.
0: And uh, here I am. Gotcha. In some way, or at some point along the way, you met Stephen. And so Stephen, tell us, you know, how you got into game design and then how Floyd got to be involved with this project.
2: It's funny because uh, my journey's not necessarily typical, or maybe it is. I don't know. I just loved video games and played a ton of board games as a kid at my grandma's house in New York. And it just bonded me with family and friends. And so I just thought, hey, I want to build a board game because I'm passionate about this. And It's funny, I ran into Floyd a while back at a designer meetup here in the Bay Area at a Game Castle. And we've stayed in touch and I tried to build something and and that's kind of how we coalesced. And then he's been a great mentor in the process. Gotcha.
0: And then, so Steven, you you were already working on Slash and Spells and then Floyd came along and
2: joined the project? Yeah, honestly, he saw the really early prototype and I was just crazy enough to work on it for a while. And then as it was progressing along... Yeah, he advised that hey, this is not bad, but you know, if you really want to be serious, it still needs a lot of work. And so we spent a whole year working and rebuilding it from there, um, which is an amazing process. <laughs> gotcha. And then from the
0: beginning, was the game already asymmetrical? Was that the plan early on?
2: Oh yeah. So the game is heavily influenced from a lot of you know video games and fantasy themes throughout you know my life and. Essentially, what I wanted to build was something super fun. And that comes from asymmetry. I want to play different things. I want things to feel unique. And so there was always a lot of asymmetry in the game. But when me and Floyd started working on it together, we took my systems and really sat down and made them more straightforward as well as we made them more deep. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think with the success
0: of games like Root, which has made a gazillion dollars on Kickstarter, Vast had a lot of success. Merchants Cove has had a lot of success. There's a lot of games coming out now that have a ton of asymmetry and they're being they're really successful in the marketplace. So I think we're going to see more and more of those games as people play them and go, oh, I could I could do something like this. And as publishers see that gamers really like these things. And so they're obviously going to make more games that that cater to that side of the industry. And so before we get into kind of specifics, let's get a good working definition. When, when we say asymmetrical game, I feel like that could kind of cover a lot of different things. So, Floyd, when, when you think asymmetry, an asymmetrical game, what does that mean exactly? I think that
3: when we as designers put something down, we kind of want to see something that is cohesive and that players uh, follow a rule by I think when we say asymmetry, um, there's a lot of different ways that people think of doing, which is like character thematic asymmetry. uh, There's um, mechanical asymmetric. And then there's completely different rules and objectives for each character. Um, In this case, we had to make each character uh, play and damage differently. Which means they don't necessarily follow the same rule as another player, but they could have a different set of rules uh, for moving or a different set of rules for how they can do damage to another player. And I think that's what we're really talking about when we say asymmetric. That when you play, when you get back on the table and you play this the same game, you're not entirely sure if you are playing the same game. In fact, it's uh, the rules are so different when you play a, a. another character that you feel like you're playing an entirely uh different world so i would say that asymmetric is actually providing uh replayability for players it's it's just it's i would say it's a way to make uh the gameplay different how do you feel about that steven
2: yeah steven you want anything Yeah, I think asymmetry is just, you know, you have a core system that you're building on and you're trying to deliver fun and uniqueness with each, you know, point of asymmetry that you bring. And that's that fun is because it's different. You're doing a different thing. You're enacting a different action within the world and the different systems within it. And that feels fun and rewarding because it gets to that part of the play of a game as you interact and become something yourself that is different.
0: Right. And it seems like these games really exist on a spectrum. I mean, you have all the way on one end where the game is very, very light asymmetry where maybe the players are a little bit different. They have slightly different cards. One of them is a little faster. One of them has a little more health. Mm-hmm. One of the factions can move in slightly different ways. You kind of have that. Then maybe somewhere along the way you have a game like Sides where each player has a different faction and the rules of the game are pretty much all the same for everybody, but then you can break the rules for your faction in a different way. Or you have access to different upgrades, you have access to different things. And then on the very far other end is a game like Root, where every player is very much playing a different game. Different win conditions, different mechanisms, everybody basically has a different rule book that they're going off of and trying to figure the game (laughs) out. And so you kind of have this full spectrum. And now where would you say Slash and Spells falls on that spectrum? So listeners can get an idea of uh, where you're coming from
2: well i I don't think we're as uh, far with root um, because the objective is the same Um, we're all trying to score knockdowns so there's a similar objective across all the different heroes but i think um, we're very close to scythe in the sense that you know you're gonna have basically each character is like a unique faction and within that unique faction there's a ton of different points of asymmetry that we can describe. Uh, one such point is, is a system that Floyd came up with, the attribute system, where they have variable different health, starting energy levels, something we call might and speed, which tie into the action selection of each character. But beyond that, we have typically three different tokens that tie into relic paths, which call, is basically a skill tree. Or tech tree, but more like a skill tree than you might find in a video game. But we've leveraged that to unlock powers for your character. And each one of those do kind of like a faction ability. And that's really how that asymmetry evolves. Plus, we were really crazy. Me more than Floyd. And uh, I had 18 unique pieces of art for every character. So each card is itself a unique card and we built a system where those actually become unique actions as well that we can describe later.
0: Yeah. And that's another way you can add asymmetry into a game is just through the artwork, through the graphic design, through the fonts. You know, there's all sorts of ways you can, you can do that. Um, Floyd, back over to you, let's, let's talk about why, why do you think gamers are drawn to these games? Why do you think so many people keep backing these games on Kickstarter, keep playing them and join them? What is it about these games that draws people in? I think it's the fact
3: that you could play again with with, uh, your friends who hasn't played it and still enjoy it. A lot of the games nowadays um, you play, you put down, and you're like, hey, I've played this game before. With so many games coming out, with like 10,000 board games coming out a year, um, the most that you'll probably see a game played is once, actually. And with asymmetric games... It's like, it's almost like you're playing an entirely new game, you know, each time you take it out on the table. So, um, I think that's as we're headed towards that market of, um, board games, uh, growing in numbers, it's gonna be very important to add replayability value, whether that's events or asymm- asymmetry. And, um, yeah, if you had questions on how you we add asymmetry, I'd love to delve
0: into that. Oh, yeah, we'll get to those here in just a little bit. Uh, I want to just kind of come at it from the 30,000-foot the view, and then we'll kind of work down closer and closer to your actual uh, game as almost a case study. But uh, let's also get into the why of designing. So, Stephen, what made you want to design one of these games? I mean, they take a long time to put together. There's a lot of extra playtesting, a lot of extra balancing you got to do. And so what was it about this type of game that, that drew you in as a designer?
2: Well, first, I got to say, to do something like this, you got to be passionate or crazy or both. So I'll say it's been a long journey, and I'm better for it. It's uh, been a learning process. But to to get back to the passion about why I pushed through and got to where we are today is I just wanted to bring fun to people's tables. I mean, we all live you know, normal lives, and we kind of think, okay, what kind of impact will we have when we're gone? And to me, I just enjoyed so much just interacting and playing different games over my life. And I just wanted to make a fun game that you could just pick up, play, and have a great time. And so that's kind of the impetus for creating Slash and Spells. It's just something that you can hang out with your friends, just pick it up, learn it pretty quickly, but it has a lot of depth to it where you're going to want to play it again.
0: Gotcha. But let's go a little deeper though because you could have designed a party game. You could have designed any other game that would have been so much easier to design, so much faster in the design process, so much less playtesting you could have done. So what was it about asymmetrical games in particular that you're like, "Okay, this is the kind of game that I want to design." And we'll come back to you Floyd here in just saying cuz I want to know why you joined the you joined the party later and you didn't you you didn't have to. You saw this as an opportunity. And so, but Steven like, "What is it about this type of game though that really just pulled you into the design work?"
2: So, so many things. One thing is just being able to create and build each individual character. Each one was built from scratch. Um, You know, I worked with my illustrator and gave him some ideas for each character. I wrote backstories for each character. I just wanted to honor and, you know, all the great, you know, Brandon Sanderson's killing right now on Kickstarter. I've read a lot of his Mistborn Chronicles books and Lord of the Rings and Wheel of Time series growing up and played a lot of games like World of Warcraft where they have deeply asymmetrical characters and classes. And I just love that. And I just wanted to make something like that that was for the tabletop scene. So that's why I kept pushing through.
0: (laughs) Very cool. And then Floyd, you came later on. So how far along was the game when you got into it and what made you want to join the project knowing it was an asymmetrical game
3: so from my perspective um and observing steven he was really heavy into the thematics which probably played out naturally into the asymmetry asymmetry um i think he was really focused on the world and how the characters all played out uh i hopped in uh because i saw what he was doing and i think um Stephen, it was really passionate about this project. Uh, the art looked great already, uh, so I thought there was an opportunity there to complete the project using the experience that I had uh, in game design and add value to it. Um, how would you would you say that yeah. is true, Stephen? That you were really passionate into
2: the you were underselling. and what my game was like before. My game wasn't bad. It was actually fun and and more light and easy to play. But Floyd just has a a really good mind for systems, streamlining things for players, while also looking to add kind of systems that players are going to come back and want to learn and, and deep dive on. And so I think I would say that I, I i grew and there was a lot of great people that helped me and influenced the design while i was working on it before floyd, floyd came on but floyd really looked at a lot of the systems that i put in and found ways to optimize them change them improve them so we really worked together killed some of my darlings as well as you know i think i provided a good devil's advocate for certain things as we looked to rebuild what i had kind of thrown together and really give it a final polish and make sure all the systems made sense and you know were fun for players.
3: And I think you wanted to go there like observing you I think you wanted to wanted it to be that. I kind of just gave you that extra push. I think when I joined the project I said something along the lines of let's not shy away from asymmetry. Let's just lean into it and go heavy
2: onto it. I do recall that. And I remember one of your, my favorite quotes for you is this is going to take a lot of hours, minimum. I think you said, you know, 40 to 60 hours just to rebuild the systems that we wanted to put in place. And I think we're 10x that now. So. Thank you for your commitment.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would say forty to sixty sounds like a very low number compared to how long these games take. Because there's just so much to do and so much to balance and oh. so much that you have to figure out. Oh yeah, does it work? And and you have to play every faction or every character against every other one over and over and over again and make sure there's no broken matchups mm. or anything like that. There's just a lot going on, and that's definitely one of the cons to designing these games. But let's uh, let's talk let's talk pros and cons. Uh, Floyd, back over to you. What are some of the advantages to designing an asymmetrical game? I think some of the
3: advantages is that we could really uh, get creative, and uh, we could really balance number and stats if you use like the proper tools. We were using Excel and a weighted system to kind of keep the characters in check, and we could you can keep each character interesting. Like there is no um, boring character in our game just because they function so differently. Uh, there are challenges though, and you know, I'm sure you're going to get to that eventually,
0: Gabe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely get into the cons. Stephen, anything else that uh, stands out in your mind as a huge advantage or a huge pro in designing asymmetrical games?
2: I think the definite pro is you'll be inspired by the game you're creating because you're taking, I would say, strategic risks. And the risks are exciting. Um, I'll say that for the pro.
3: I also think that um, when we go to cons and we show the game, play testers come back and they're like hey i want to try that other character that new one you have and i definitely think that's a pro i don't know if there's a word for that gabe
0: oh i don't know but it, yeah you're, you're definitely right that, that's a huge advantage uh for you know getting people like you said earlier a lot of times people only play a game one time but with this it's like well once you've played a game once you've only played it one way and now there's all these other characters, and I know your game has a ton of different heroes to, to try. And the cool thing is you can also kind of stair-step the difficulty. So, for instance, you can have a range of, of level 1 to level 5 difficulty in characters, and you tell people right out of the box, hey, don't play level 5. Play level 1 versus level 1. Figure out the mechanisms. Figure out how the game works. And then you can kind of work your way into trying – more challenging characters, you know, characters with different mechanisms and different combos and the way they play out is differently. And then also the advantage there is you can have a brand new player play up against a a player that's been playing for years and they can still be competitive because you can give the new player, the easier character, the veteran player, a much more challenging character to play. And then they can go at it and it still feel like everybody has a chance to win without having to hold back necessarily. And so I think that's a huge advantage Uh, as well Uh, anything y'all want to add as far as that goes i think uh, also touching
3: on that gabe that reminds me that we also uh, made each player have a difficulty ranking and we kind of charted that as well and i think that like just like you said it gives each player an opportunity no matter like if you're um, new in board gaming or if you're an advanced player to kind of uh, delve and challenge yourself uh, kind of like a make-your-own-game deal.
0: Yeah, for sure. And this was a huge thing with a game that I signed as a publisher. Uh, it was the winner of the Game Crafter contest that I ran a while back. It was called Dungeon Duel. We changed the name now to Card Clash. And what I love about it is that each character very, very different. Uh, you're just playing cards. You know, it's not. There's no board. It's just a card game kind of thing, a dueling card game. But it's great because you can have a kid, you know, a 12 year old, play up against their dad. And it can still be challenging. Like as a dad, I can still play as hard as I can, and my my kid can play as hard as they can, and we're gonna see who's gonna win. Like we don't have to, I don't have to hold back, you know, because they're playing the easier character. I'm playing a character that's a lot more going on, a lot more to think about, and it's it's fun that way. It's not like a lot of kids' games or a lot of family games where it's like, okay, I'm gonna if I play hard, I'm gonna win because I understand how that this game works, and you're 10 and you have your your brain only works so well, you know. (laughs) And so, but when you have these asymmetrical games, you can you can have that balance. The game balances itself in that way, right? So uh, I think that's a huge, huge thing. Um, but let's get into some of the cons, some of the negatives. Uh, Steven, you know, you've been working on this game the longest, and so what are, what are some of the some of the the downsides? We already talked about where well, they take a long time. There's a lot to balance. There's a lot of play testing. What else have you found is a disadvantage?
2: Uh, I mean, I think the things you just listed are the first things that come to mind. It's the it's the balance and also the things that break other characters. You really have to, at a high level, one, take a look at the complexity. I think one, one thing Floyd just mentioned is when we were designing the characters, we built one character first using my old system, the Warlock fellafar. and he ended up being our second most complex character on the difficulty level. And so we knew we needed to start thinking about how much further we go beyond him. So we decided to make a character that was a little bit harder than him. And then everything else was down from there. And I think just building that right amount of complexity that feels fun is important, but it's a huge challenge because where do you draw the line? You know, cause one person might say, you know, I want it super complex and that's fun for me, but you really have to think about strategically. How do you take, sky's the limit if you go super asymmetric. So you really have to constrain yourself. And I think what me and Floyd really struggled with at the beginning was build the underlying balancing systems for all the characters in one go. So we ended up playing the characters against each other in TTS uh, and then really refining the first two or three characters we built. And then as we built the other couple to make it six total characters, we actually had to go back in and tweak some tiny bits and pieces here to align with that total overall system that had evolved during the game design process. And you have to be willing to do that because I think your initial choices might be in the right direction, but we'll need a lot of course correction along the way as you're evolving such a deeply asymmetrical game.
0: Yeah, it seems like you, you probably want to start off with a very basic game, make sure the core mechanisms work, and then start adding the differences, then start adding the complexity. Otherwise, you're not going to know what's broken and why. If you start off with a super asymmetrical, super complex game, it's going to be kind of hard to figure out why it doesn't work. And the odds of it not working at the beginning is basically 105%. And so it's it's probably easier to start off with something a little more basic and then ramp, ramp up the complexity after that. Floyd, is, is that your experience here where, where you kind of want to start off with something a little bit on the simpler side and then go heavier and you know lean further into the asymmetry.
3: Yeah, the, most definitely you got it on the nail. And I think, um, that's something you just learn as a game designer going forward that you have to build. What I taught Stephen was the bare bones first and the skeleton, like after you add the skeleton, then you can really, um, make each part asymmetric, um, So I think the skeleton is basically how I imagine the core system would be, which is like if you were to invent um, chess, for example, and all the rules around that. Asymmetry would be anything outside of it that kind of twists and turns the actual game. Um, Though there are a lot of challenges, uh, any small thing that you add into this machine will clog up any cogs so once you have do have the core system you definitely do not want to touch any of the core system at all
0: <laughs> right otherwise you're gonna have to go back and change everything else potentially if you've you know if you're if you're building a house and you, you lay the foundation and then you start putting up the walls and the, and the roof and all that and you go oh shoot something's wrong with the foundation well you got to take down the rest everything else you know the walls and the roof got to come back down too to fix the foundation or move it or change it or something like that. But it seems like if you were going to design chess, you probably want to start off designing checkers and then evolve it into chess. You know, get the movement down, get the board and the size and the colors and like different things like that, right? That's the kind of the foundation of the game. And then you go, okay, now here's a piece that can move all the way to the other side of the board, but only on the diagonal. Here's a piece that can move all the way to the other side of the board, but only in a straight line. You know, and then you start adding the extra interesting parts, the complexity. But you want to make sure checkers works first. And then kind of dive into the, the chess part. Stephen, you want to add anything?
2: No, that's a, that's a beautiful analogy. I think you definitely want to do it that way. Um, but if you're crazy, you could also do it backwards. And Did you, did you do it backwards? No. So oh, okay. <laughs> I think I, I started off backwards and then Floyd took me forwards. <laughs> so I guess the answer is yes and no. Uh, I okay. think I started with a really simple version of Slash and Spells, but it was so simple that it was boring um to get the first part of it going and so i actually had to go back to the drawing board and kind of get more crazy and like do some cool stuff um but then you know you have to find the core systems and and those were changing when i was first really in the design and iteration stage when we were really early on and it was just me and I'm just trying to learn how to be a game designer and I'm reading books and trying to talk to people and and get an idea of how all the systems function and what's good game design. So I think if you can start clean and work your way up, I think you're going to be more sane. Um, But if you're trying to create weird systems, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to to get creative and then dial it back and start at the, the bare bones again. Right. There's no
0: necessarily perfect way to do any of this. It really just comes down to your personal style and and kind of what you, you are getting excited about. I think passion, like you said at the beginning, is so important for a project like this. And so if you start off a little bit too vanilla, a little bit too bland, then you might not actually have enough enthusiasm to finish it. It might be like, ah, it's just too boring. And so starting off with something that is a little bit more complex, a little crazier, might not be a bad thing, but then figuring out, okay, how do I dial it back and just make sure that the systems in general work well. I remember interviewing uh, Brad Talton Jr. from Level 99 Games. I think this was years ago, but uh, he's designed quite a few asymmetrical fighting games. It's card-based and you know, kind of back and forth playing cards. And his point, one of his main points was to design a system that is the kind of core that is fun. Like make sure the core bottom part of the game foundation system is enjoyable. Then start adding in the interesting ways for the game to kind of break itself, right? For the game, for the characters to, to do things differently, to mess with that core system in different ways and play off of each other in different ways and combos and things like that. But if you, if you start off with a game at its core, that's not fun. Then it's kind of hard to make it fun later. Like you can add some interesting gimmicks. You can add some spice in there, but if, if your meat is stale, then it doesn't matter how much spice you add onto it, right? If, if the meat is rotten, then it you know adding a bunch of salt and, and delicious other stuff on top of it might not
2: actually be what you need to do. So that's great advice, and, and it goes back to that checkers analogy. You know, checkers is fun. You know, jumping over someone that's joyful. Chess, another n- another level on that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. All right, so let's uh, switch gears. Let's go back to something you mentioned early on, or just a little while ago with Floyd. As far as like ways to add asymmetry. So, what were some of the things that you came into this project or projects in general that have asymm- asymmetry? And what are some ways you can kind of tweak the game? Some knobs you can turn, some dials you can you can turn to add more or less asymmetry into the experience.
3: So it was funny because when I onboarded, it was a little bit of a roller co- roller coaster for Steven. I had to kind of pull back the project. We had to work on the core. So I, I did like your analogy of the base and the house. I think it's kind of like, hey, the house is like half built. We had to pull it back and then work on the base. And then I threw him like a bunch of crazy ideas once we had like a good base. And I think it really augmented on that. I think the first character um, kind of set the the railroad for the rest of the characters because I think when w- when I was showing all these like crazy ideas, we had this idea of um, this character actually eventually uh, branching to summon uh, something that warps him, and then on another fa- uh, another faction of uh, I, w- I would say another path of his um, playstyle, which you can only take one path, uh, probably at most one path in each game. Um, but another path was he had a s- totally separate skill tree that you grew, um, which eventually the thing that actually moves the tracker that moves the skill tree, when you max that out, it actually comes out into the field and helps you fight. So I think like ideas like that were a little bit insane and it kind of helped bring in the spice to all the
0: meat. Gotcha. And it's also going back to kind of what we were talking about earlier is it's almost a a, a disadvantage here because you can do so many different things. You don't have a closed system that all the players are playing inside of. You have a partially closed system, but then all these options, right? And you can add so many different mechanisms. Like maybe one character uses deck building the other one uses dice rolling or dice placement or bag building. Like you can do so many different things Mm -hmm. and that can be challenging because that's too many options, right? And, And it can be hard to stay focused. And so... Steven, what would be your advice as far as how to stay focused? How not to just overwhelm yourself with options and opportunities and have 47 characters in the box that all work in totally different ways. What do you do to stay focused and kind of keep the game cohesive and then maybe add you know, add to it later, maybe in expansions, things like that. But how do you stay focused?
2: I think it's a great question. Now, I think we definitely approached it from the mindset that we can do some really cool stuff with the characters, but we really only want to have three characters of the six characters kind of have some more intricate systems we want the other three characters to have cool fun systems but we gotta dial it back and be less crazy and one of the ways that we did that was we looked at each one and found ways to cut that big vision out of another character, but still give them an essence. For example, when Floyd was talking about that, that fire warlock, Felifar, he can summon a demon and it basically, before you bring it out into play, it increases your base attributes as it's becoming more powerful to be summoned. Well, we took a completely different version of, of, of that kind of powerful asymmetrical system. When we looked at Halford, we didn't want to give him any tokens that came on the board or had a lot of interesting nuances. We wanted to dial him back. We wanted to present a different level of asymmetric abilities that were a little bit easier and palatable to play for a new player. So we looked at it and we said, what well, would be cool if he just had tokens that he managed on a sheet. None of them came onto the board. There wasn't no uh, positioning you had to factor in or look at. Um, but it just would change his gameplay completely. But it's an easier system to have a stance affect every card you play versus you have a token out there that does a special unique thing and you have to keep track of it and it's you know positionally aware. So we looked at each part of the game and at a high level just thought, hey, we need to add complexity, but we also need to remove complexity. And that kind of dictated... The asymmetry that we put in each one so that we can deliver a game that's playable by, you know, young kids to, you know, a more senior hobbyist. We have uh, a character, Risha, that I think Floyd absolutely loved designing uh, because it's extremely out there on the asymmetry side. Yeah. And if you have a rating
0: system, you can also let that be your guide for the number of characters. So for instance, this is something we're doing with Card Clash. There's a whole bunch of level ones. There's a few less level twos, a few less level threes, a few less, like there's there's fewer and fewer as you get up the the difficulty rating scale. And it it just kind of makes sense because for the most part, you're gonna have players that aren't veteran players, right? They're coming in, they've only played the game zero times to a handful. And so for the most part, you wanna give them as many options as possible. And then as they get familiar with the game, then they can kind of move down the rating scale and, but you don't need as many characters because you're not going to have as many people playing those characters. And so I think that could be helpful as well, as far as like limiting the number of characters, number of components in the box. You can use that as kind of the constraint on it. Um, and so anyway, I think that's or or you can. I think I've seen what was it Plat Hat that does this. They have like. Um, Summoner Wars, where each box comes with factions that play against each other really, really well. They're really matched up well against each other based on like how difficult they are to play and how they kind of match up and all that. And then they have other boxes that come out with maybe a little bit more challenging uh, characters or factions. And then they have some that are a little bit less challenging. And so they kind of limit it based on what's in the box. So I think that's another way you could do it just from a product standpoint. Uh, Floyd, anything you want to add as far as uh, any of this stuff?
3: Yeah, I thought uh, we could touch up on some of the tools that we use. I think uh, we were using a lot of like shared documents like Google Docs, uh, Google Sheets, and we were um, communicating. It's important not to choke out your code designer and vice versa yeah. and always throw in a little joke in there um, to make them happy. But definitely, um, you know, like I think Stephen had this really cool um, – uh, Excel to to Illustrator parse data, and I'm sure there are other, there are other softwares for this, right, Gabe? Where you put in the uh, text on an Excel sheet, then you hit save, and then it'll upload all the cards. Um, so those were kind of like the managing tools. Any any other tools that we use, Stephen?
2: Oh, I think during the pandemic, the number one tool was just you know, Tabletop called- Simulator. Tabletop Simulator was huge. But the other thing, too, is video calls, man, and just calls in general. We communicated daily, uh, and those video calls were really helpful because you can do the screen share, and I could show Floyd the Excel spreadsheet. We looked at the bones together and kind of built things from there. And I know you're referring to InDesign Data Merge, which has been absolutely fundamental because we changed values for cards um each character had 18 cards so it adds up to like 100 cards that we were going in and modifying on a weekly basis moving the numbers around adding some additional abilities here and there and then balancing that i think you know you got to be organized there's tons of game files uh, art graphic features things here and there and i think one of the most important things about if you're going to build asymmetry you got to be really organized and you got to have kind of a high level roadmap for practically everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, because with so much asymmetry going on, you're going to be tweaking a lot of the numbers, a lot of the abilities, a lot of the ways that the game works. And so, yeah, data merge is so helpful. It's, it's been a, a lifesaver for a lot of the projects I've been working on lately that do have just a lot of stuff going on. And as you do a play test, you're like, okay, let's, let's go back to the drawing board on this and let's change these numbers and to not have to go in and to individually change every single card. And, oh man, it just yeah saves a ton, ton of time. Amen. But uh, let's get into, into that side of things. Let's talk about balance. I feel like that's one of the most challenging aspects of any of these games, especially the more asymmetry you have, because you don't want one faction just to dominate everybody else. You also don't want to have a situation where, okay, if player one chooses character A and then player two gets to choose, well, they go, oh, well, this is the obvious choice to play against that character. And now I'm going to win or I have a much better chance of winning. Like you don't want the game to be solved before people even play, you know. And so you got to figure out like how the matchups are going to be balanced and, and all that kind of thing. And so, Stephen, let's talk about maybe early on what you were going through as far as balancing the game. And then Floyd, will let you come in and, and talk about kind of the, the next stage when you came on board and, and did a lot more figuring that out.
2: Yeah, um, I think back then there wasn't as much of a deep strategy as there is now in the game. I would say it evolved from more of a casual game uh, to something that's maybe competitive in nature because of how structured the systems are now. But to go back in time, um, the systems were pretty Easy. There wasn't a ton of deep, deep strategy for each character. They each did different cool things and it felt like there was a story being told. But at the end of the day, I think that the mechanisms weren't as polished nor were they as well thought out. We spent a lot of time kind of agonizing later on about it. But I'll let Floyd kind of cover it because the early version of the game wasn't bad. It just isn't as good as it could have been. And that's really where we took it.
0: Yeah, Flo, go ahead. Uh, talk about like how you took the game to the next level, especially when it comes to balancing each character. So it's funny because I've spent
3: like my, my entire si- seven years uh, building symmetric games. And symmetric games are tricky because they're really hard to balance all the systems. You have to make sure everything's on a matrix, all the numbers are, adds up, all the cards are equal. Um, so building like an asymmetric game, I think kind of you have to kind of split your mind in two. One is the core system has to be symmetric, then then you can twist it and add all sorts of things. So how we really dealt with this was we tackled each character one at a time. After we had our core system in place, we tackled each uh, character one at a time. Then each one of their arcs arc lines uh one you know one day at a time i think uh stephen was on a call with me an hour a day we set a cadence in there to to, um ring at four o'clock to 5 p.m then we were um fine-tuning the numbers we were brainstorming then we were fine-tuning the numbers on a spreadsheet Uh, we used a weighted system where um everything uh, we had to basically take um all of our stats and make sure uh, we knew what our metrics were. So, like, for example, two movement equals one attack or, you know, one one might equals, you know, two damage in cards. So we, we we really laid it out and understood, you know, where all our metrics were. That way, when we twisted something, we could go back and say, okay, this doesn't add up because on our spreadsheet, it doesn't add up. So I think that was a good uh, volume. Then we had to keep a log. Um, I think the log is very important. Whereas we, you know, Stephen was just plop, plop, plopping down where um, we had made changes on Word, just so we can look back and say, "Hey, we made this change because of this logical reason." Um because you know uh two speed does not equal one damage, or we made this change because um uh, a player when entered here, there was a bug where another thing triggered.
0: Gotcha. And let's keep let's keep talking about this fully just for a second. Let's talk about how to do that effectively as far as figuring out how much how many values are, are worth other values, if that makes sense. Like you mentioned, you know, one speed being worth two damage, something something like that. I know some games they'll say, okay, every character is different but they all have the same total number of points so for instance they have 20 points in speed and accuracy and strength and and all these things and so the way that the numbers play out is different on each character but at the end of the day they all have a a total of 20 versus some games that say hey some some characters have 10 and a really amazing special ability some some characters have 20 points total but a really just kind of mediocre special ability and that's kind of how they balance things out but what would be your advice for a designer to figure out like how to put a number to things so that things you know are a little bit easier to balance in the spreadsheet and you don't have to play test it a million times just to kind of know for sure you can maybe know just by looking at the numbers i think that
3: it gives you a general idea but definitely slowing down sitting down and kind of um, writing stuff out like if one movement equaled this um, then putting it to the test will actually get you a better understanding of um, how logically uh, numbered your your uh, all your criterias are. and I think just by understanding your game fully like um, uh, obviously there's a lot to think about there's um, there's so many factors that could get into play. Uh, but I would consider it more of like a problem solving kind of thing whereas you can sit down and really think about it and say what does one damage really mean right? Does one damage really mean that I'm playing a full card. Well, what's the average damage of a card? You know, or you know, what's the average um, of? So I think a lot of it deals with statistics, really, uh, where you're plotting down. If I spend one action cube, what does that you know cost? Uh, so a lot of also like if. And uh, logistics and just kind of sitting down and doing, even if you don't know a little bit of math, maybe ask like a math teacher if any of this makes sense.
0: Right. And again, this is where spreadsheets can be very much your friend and all of the math <laughs> that goes on behind the scenes and those. Steven, anything you want to add as far as balancing yeah. or, or figuring out values?
2: Go ahead. I think what Floyd was really describing is, is genius because it boils down to basically what he was saying is in our game, one of the things that we used as kind of like a guiding light for the balancing and kind of figuring out that core system was our game centered around action selection which is a pretty straightforward system where you'll, you'll take an action of six different base actions, and those actions tie into pretty much every system of our game. But they're, they're tight. They're constrained. You only get a couple actions, and those systems feed into other systems that are also constrained by those actions. For example, we have an energy system. You can't play cards if you don't have energy. Cards deal damage, Actions could also deal a small amount of damage with a basic attack. So we looked at all the different parts of that. So if I get cards on my turn instead of taking an attack, that's potential damage in the future, potential ability to manipulate the board state potentially. What, what are the trade-offs? Well, I have cards, but then I also need energy. Um, so I'm not going to be able to do certain things. So we, we really broke down... What does that fundamentally mean when you're playing the game? What does that influence? What does that change? What does that lock you out? What constraints do you have? Because certain systems will be more optimal for the objective of the game. Like, obviously, damage is the most optimal system if you're talking about trying to, you know, eliminate a player in a game. Well, positioning might be very effective and important, too. It's just how that plays out and how you design around that, that really dictates that statistical breakdown. And Excel spreadsheets are your friend because you want to slice and dice those numbers. And then as what Floyd was saying, throw it together and try to see if it really does show up in the game when you actually play it. Because sometimes the numbers could be a little bit off, even if they seem right, at least from a player perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so much of this really just comes down to putting in the time and doing mm-hmm. a whole lot of playtesting. And so let's talk about playtesting. Stephen, let's uh, go ahead. Oh, no, I
3: was just going to say, I think the traditional way to actually do it is just a whole bunch of playtesting. <laughs> and you yeah. actually went into that ahead of me, Gabe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, Floyd, I want to come back to you in a minute because I want to kind of basically start off. All right, Stephen, let's, let's, let's go to you and talk about the early playtesting before the game really got more complex and, and Floyd came on board and added a lot more. To the systems and things like that. Tell me about playtesting then, what you were looking for, what you know you were hoping to get out of playtesting, things you were changing early on.
2: Yeah, so I was just looking at the characters. Once I had kind of defined their their asymmetry and their path, it was mostly just balancing and just seeing what people liked about my core systems at the time. And, you know, like I said before, some of the core systems were less intuitive than they should have been. And so during playtesting, I would find, oh, wait, this this system is not very intuitive. People want to do X, Y, and Z, but my system's constraining them. And so they feel like they're having fun in other ways. So that the overall, you know, feedback from my game was, oh, this is fun. But X, Y, and Z are interesting. And maybe, you know, it impacted my play here. So I liked this part right here, and I like this part right here, and I had fun overall, but this thing seemed a little confusing, or I just didn't like it. So I would discover those types of things uh, during the playtesting, and I would try to refine that. But to be honest, uh, the game was lighter, and it was a bit lost in the sea of where I would end up. I felt pretty happy about where I got to on my own before I brought Floyd on, but I have to admit, having worked so hard with Floyd, and have that kind of co-designer, having a partner and just having someone to be a devil's advocate for every idea that you have or want to do really adds so much value. I, I, I don't know if I could do game design solo. I think having a partner in anything you do is just so healthy for mental health. But also just if you have a good or bad idea, it only gets better when you work with someone who is also an advocate for building good things.
0: Well, it gets back to the the old school saying is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so that, I think with a project like this, where you have so much to do and there's so many characters to balance and so many things to figure out, mechanisms to make it work, having somebody else there to bounce ideas off of, to be an accountability person in your life, but also just a play test. So, you know, I design a lot of solo games. And so I don't have to go very far to find a playtester. Here I am. But if you're designing <laughs> a dueling game, if you're designing a game with a lot of asymmetry, a lot of factions, stuff like that, just having another person on board on the team that is a guaranteed playtester is so huge and will speed up a game's design by leaps and bounds, just having that other person on board. And so Floyd, let's move it over to you. Let's talk about, the, the playtesting, when you came on board, now you're making the game more complex. Now you're leaning into the asymmetry more. So what were some of the things you were noticing, maybe some things that were changing, things you were writing down as far as those playtesting sessions were going? So I definitely
3: agree that I think that having a co-designer, I think, is really helpful. I mean, Stephen is, you know, catching everything that I dropped the ball on. Um, I'm not really good at writing or remembering stuff, or writing down stuff. But I am good at the uh, creative and engineering part of like core mechanisms and ideas. And I think we were working really well together. Um, I do think that uh, a lot of the challenges that we had was mainly because of um, just by the complexity of each character. It took a lot of time to crank out um, Gabe, what was the question again? I'm I'm sorry, I kind of yeah. No worries. So,
0: <laughs> looking at the uh, the playtesting sessions, once you came on board, right? So now the game's getting more complex. You're adding more things to it. You're leaning into the asymmetry. Tell me about those playtesting sessions. What you're noticing? Maybe some things that changed uh, when you got into actually, especially when it got into like blind playtesting and, and playing, uh, with, you know, unguided with other uh, people. And so they're just having to figure the game out. Because then, I mean, all bets are off. Then, you know, if you're not around, or if you're just going to kind of sit back and watch to see how the game plays out. You know, tell me some of the things you were noticing during those sessions. Uh, so
3: I, I was originally a play tester. And um, I think that uh, the from our, uh, when I got went on board, I think our play testing focus shifted entirely. Uh, we were looking more at uh, very specific and narrow uh, things rather than broad things. I think... Um, as a designer uh, you really ought to be um, a painter you're painting an empty canvas and when you're playtesting i think you really need to know what kind of questions to ask and what kind of feedback to take in and what kind what to reject but always keep an open mind and always listen and i i showed steven this that we are the engineers we're just You know, putting stuff in a sandbox to kind of or the microscope to kind of look at things. So when we would play test them, we would actually have a talk ahead of time to prepare what they what play testers would possibly say. But we wouldn't tell them what that thing was. And if they did say it, then our suspicions uh, would be confirmed by the play testers. Uh, anything to elaborate on that, Stephen?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point because that is essentially what you help me do better is you know, as a play tester sometimes and a designer, we're maybe inserting, asking too many uh, questions rather than just letting people speak. And in that speak, that free speak, there's a lot of nuggets there. But if we don't do the work beforehand to understand what potential problems may or may not be coming up, where things are the most fun or may not be the most fun, you know, parts of the game that we're working on tweaking but want to get like unsolicited feedback on. Those are all great points. But another thing that you did when you came on board is we just started reaching out to a lot of uh, really well And competent designers, people who break games and really have them try to break our game. We wanted people to find bugs. We wanted them to test to see how bulletproof we made our systems. Um, And that was a great next step uh, and, and something that I wouldn't have had. As much resources in that department, since you've been in the game industry for longer, you have more connections with people who are just really good at ripping things apart and finding bugs and breaking games, which I think is super important because every now and then you will find small edge cases that you need to remove. And we got a lot of them out.
0: Yeah. And I like the idea of writing things down ahead of time that you're looking for, you know, there's a huge difference. It's something designers, just especially new designers, really need to figure out is that there's a huge difference between playing your game and play testing your game. And play testing is, is scientific, it's an experiment. And if you're gonna do any kind of experiment, you wanna have a hypothesis going in. Okay, I think X is gonna happen when Y happens or something like that, right? So if you go in you think, okay, I think character A is too powerful, especially against character B, that's what I'm testing. And sometimes you want to tell the playtesters going in. You're like, hey, I think the combat system needs a little bit of work or I think my economy is a little bit too restrictive or something like that. And so I want you guys to be on the lookout for X, Y, and Z because that's really what I'm looking at in this game. Other times, you don't want to say a word and you want to see how it plays out. And is the combat too... Because sometimes playtesters are a little bit too focused. They're a little too intent on figuring out, is this broken or not? And you might sway the results. But the main thing is, like you said, write some stuff down, go into a test, Like a test, you're doing research, you're doing an experiment, and then see what the evidence shows at the end, see what the data shows at the end. And so I think that's a a great, great point there. Gentlemen, this has been excellent. Anything you want to add, any other little nuggets of wisdom, anything else you learned during this process? Floyd, how about you?
3: Yeah, um, I would say that... try to keep the thematics of the game, but, you know, keeping the thematics and mechanics and working on the mechanics is actually very challenging. So um, I know for uh, for one point, we were trying to make certain characters feel a certain way. And I, I think when you do asymmetric, you're going to run into that challenge, but don't give up, you know, um, because there's always a solution. Right, Steven? Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, we spent a lot of time really, playing around with things before we find the optimal solution where the characters really have a chance to shine and it's worth the work. Definitely. Well, slash
0: and spells. We've been talking about it here off and on throughout this whole episode, but it's on Kickstarter right now. Steven, why don't you give us the like two minute elevator pitch for that and tell people why they should go check it out.
2: All right, so just a quick elevator pitch. Um, Slash and Spells is a arena combat primary skirmish game. It's something that you can pick up and play and have a variety of different awesome experiences. I think you're going to love how bright and energetic the art is, but more importantly, me and Floyd agonized over making a really fun game where it's going to have swingy combos that you have to spend time setting up and positioning. But don't worry, your enemy, even if you've knocked them down, will come back with a vengeance and try to take back what you just did to them. And so it's very much a balanced, tight battle from the beginning to the end. And I think you're really going to love the variety of different cool characters and the beautiful art and a little bit of the land and lore as well. Awesome. Well,
0: gentlemen, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter campaign and everything else you got going on right now.
2: Thanks again, really appreciate it. Thanks, Gabe.
1: Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?